0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Coffee and Conservation, a laid-back podcast where we discuss everything from cool animals, conservation, the environment, and what we can do to help. I'm Robert Pike, a field journalist for the Global Conservation Force, and I'm joined by my co-host Mike Veal, a world-renowned rhino conservationist and president of the Global Conservation Force. Welcome to another episode of Coffee and Conservation. Uh, I'm your host, Mike Veal from Global Conservation Force. Today, I have a very special guest, Dr. William Folds. Uh, We are not only longtime friends, but we've worked together on quite a few different programs and projects, all surrounding rhino conservation in the bigger realm. Will, welcome to the call.
1: Thank you, Mike Veal, uh, very much. Great to be with you again um, across the audio channel, and welcome to all those that are listening in.
0: Yeah. So, well, let's, let's go back. Um, Let's give everybody a kind of an intro. So you are a wildlife veterinarian and you've been working in um, the wildlife conservation scene as well as your wildlife veterinarian hat uh, for over a decade now, right?
1: Yeah, Mike. So I have been a wildlife vet uh, based in the Eastern Cape uh, of South Africa, which is the province in the sort of bottom right-hand corner, as you're looking at the map of Africa. Um, I've been doing this for 20 years and uh, running that in parallel with the conservation work that's that's happening in this part of Africa, which is extremely exciting, um, being a combination of rewilding uh, for the first decade predominantly, Uh, all tourism funded and then uh, in the second decade um, along with a major crisis in in rhino poaching we've uh, expanded that into a lot of protection work Um, and then as that has been uh, suppressed to a degree we've we've added habitat expansion uh, restoration and connected conservation to the equation so exciting place to work uh, beautiful part of the world, uh, incredible biodiversity, and, and lots of uh, amazing opportunities to to do some good stuff.
0: I couldn't agree more. Honestly, it's uh, the Eastern Cape is it's, is a magical gem, not only because of all the different um, habitat spaces and biomes, but the community of conservation is uh, very very supportive and very collaborative, which is nice because uh, it definitely shows how far. Collectively, the conservation um, industry and stakeholders have been able to get, specifically in the Eastern Cape, uh, with progress on so many fronts. Um, I think the first time you and I had met was it was early two thousand fifteen or late two thousand fourteen, if that's correct. Right. We met through um, Mark yeah, on the reserve
1: yeah that sounds about right um at that stage we were reeling under the first sort of waves of, of poaching um that had swept down from the north and were starting to impact us in the eastern cape and we were reaching out uh, across the world really for for people who could come and help us and yeah you were one of those that stuck up your hand uh, hopefully you don't regret that <laughs> um but it's, oh definitely it's been not amazing at amazing and extremely <laughs> helpful yeah um, very beneficial to us for us to have uh, GCF as an ally out there in the world, um, helping to combat one of the uh, ext- existential issues out there, which is biodiversity loss and poaching, is at the sharp end of that uh, that problem.
0: Yeah, at that time, I remember um, I was working up in the Greater Kruger and overlap with the Kruger Park itself, and I remember one of the rangers that I had worked with actually up in uh, a thorny bush and Balooly getting uh, a job down at Amakala and uh, the Eastern Cape at that time was like a blank spot in my mind as, as in like what is actually going on. So I accepted the invite to come down and check it out. And uh, gosh, I remember the first year we we lost our, sorry, we, we launched several, Uh, project ideas within that first year and then just kept running with it. Um, But let's talk about Amakala really quick because I think that's an important foundational block for people to understand. Um, So you grew up in the Eastern Cape of South Africa. Um, Your family's from the Eastern Cape for several generations. And Amakala is a very special place with a very special story. Um, Going from... Traditional livestock, uh, kind of, you know, production to rewilding the land and becoming an ecotourism center with lodges and all sorts of interconnected spaces of conservation coming together.
1: Yeah, um, we do have a, a, a an interesting story. Um, I am the fifth generation of my family that have lived on the land. My children are the sixth. Wow. Um, our history has been dominated by a domestic farming background, which is what sort of our ancestors understood, having come from Europe originally. Um, they said about what they called taming the land, um, which I think is is the story the world over. And and as a result of many generations of of doing things the way we thought you know, you know were the only options available to us, which was putting domestic species into spaces where wild animals had once roamed. Um, we realized that what we were doing was unsustainable. We also realized that, you know, we chopped up the, uh, the world that we live in into into tiny spaces, which I think is a problem the world over too. And the only way we could make a sustainable future for ourselves was to join up with our neighbors take down all those interleading fences and create more room for the species that really um, have evolved to thrive on that land, which which are the wild species. Um, and fortunately, tourism came along post-1994, and that gave us a lifeline, really, to make this transition from predominantly domestic farming and agriculture into a wildlife-based land use. And, uh, yeah, today we have the privilege of sharing that space with uh, guests from around the world and uh, simultaneously to do some really exciting and innovative conservation projects. Um, but fundamentally, it's about sharing resources with other landowners, working together to find solutions that are better than, than what they would be if we were alone. And I think that's an important formula for or what the world needs as, as we look at our future and, and our sustainability.
0: I agree. I mean, and Amakala is a gorgeous reserve and property, and the, the lodges have such a cool uh, combination of history, especially the one that your family owns and runs and operates. Um, the, the Lumenbosch uh, estates are just, it's just super cool. I mean, bringing all it together, full circle, um, I mean, your your dad specifically has been able to see the transition, and uh, I guess go through that um, that that reckoning of this isn't going to work anymore. Um, right? That was mm-hmm. that was kind of your dad's changeover.
1: Yeah, I think I think in life uh, because things are, are moving so quickly in, in many people's lives uh, I think the ability to reinvent yourself and, and your community is an important one I'm, I'm pretty sure most of us will have to adapt to a changing world a changing environment maybe even changing careers multiple times over in our lives um, and you know hats, hats off to my father's generation who were very entrenched in their ways. Um, The way they did things had been like that for several generations, actually, Um, but could also see that, you know, there were problems on the horizon uh, and were prepared to do things differently and and to pioneer new ways um, and, you know, uh, be collaborative in their approach and then also be open to new ideas, particularly from the younger generation um and and it wasn't just you know the older generation above us it was also our staff that we brought into this uh, very foreign concept of uh, of bringing wildlife back onto the land um, and most of us were completely naive uh, when we began <laughs> we didn't know much about hospitality we didn't know much about ecology uh, we certainly were quite intimidated by a lot of the wild animals that now share the space that we live in Um, so it's been an interesting journey, but, uh, very exciting and quite exhilarating.
0: Absolutely. And so how big is Amakala and its expanse now? It's, uh, it's over 12,000 hectares, right? Or just about that.
1: Um, yeah. So the main three areas of Amakala uh, are just about 9,000 hectares. So that's about 20,000 acres. Um, And importantly, they they straddle one of our sort of um, public roads that runs through the area, and, and these sort of human barriers that we've created—roads and fences and um, uh, and other barriers that are that are uh, part of the uh, the human landscape—are one of the challenges that we have now. We now need to overcome in our quest to give wildlife and nature. That uh, room to roam again, that uh, genetic connectivity that's so important to their future, and uh, and we're looking at you know the big systems that we've destroyed, uh, water systems, uh, river catchments, and things like that. As we've Soil fragmented <laughs> these landscapes, and and we've got to piece them all back together again. So, not an easy undertaking. Uh, certainly, something that's impossible to do without collaboration, and as we've discovered, uh, something that we cannot get going without the, the, the help from the world out there, just to, to, to speed up the initial catalytic um, chapters to get the whole process moving in the right direction again.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely no easy undertaking. Um, so that's a good point here. A lot of folks that uh, I encounter don't understand the difference primarily between private reserves, uh, government-run parks, and or provincial parks, a, like something relatable to like our state park systems, um, you know, Global Conservation Force is uh, one of the few organizations that does partner with private reserves across the world, uh, primarily because we see that as the most efficient and fast line effort uh, in habitat pockets where there might be priority species or umbrella species, um, and in particular. Uh, you know, Amakala is an important story that I'll, I'll seem back. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself here, but mm-hmm. we're going to talk about the exciting projects that we're all aligning. But this, this 20, 30 year history really comes to a T with um, like your father and then you and your brother uh, taking on that helm with all your neighbors at Amakala, rewilding, bringing back the, uh, the native species to rewild that landscape and rebuild that ecosystem. And now as conservationists, we're looking at this limited space uh, aspect of these species needing more space because we're all actually quite successful in this rebound phase Mm -hmm. and also securing future space. But in, in the eyes of the public, a lot of folks don't understand private reserves carry the burden of all of the cost. So, it's not always advantageous for them to actually expand their fence lines because that immediately equals more costs and overhead, which then could translate to the lodges itself, or it could translate to the owner operators, depending on how many families are involved in sites. And that gets uh, communally complicated when maybe one or two stakeholders in that realm don't want that expansion. So um, I know uh, you guys were trailblazers of your time, you guys and the uh, the Carica Reserve on the other side of the corridors uh, idea there. Um, what are some of the challenges um, for folks listening that coming from a private reserve, uh, you didn't realize were going to be a burden um, for you running a lodge and then having wildlife? Um, you know, things like wildlife monitoring, collaring, tagging wildlife protection services, all of your different, you know, anti-poaching wings. Mm. Um, Could you kind of give some insight into that? Because I think that's a gap in a lot of folks' uh, understanding in the conservation space.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, Mike. Um, You know, first and foremost, a lot of our guests ask us, um, you know, how much the government contributes. And in in our case, the answer is, is zero. You know, we still pay land taxes and all the other taxes that uh, are required of of us as uh, as citizens uh, towards the government but there's nothing coming back actually in support of the conservation efforts that we do on our land specifically um, the other challenge has been you know initially because we were quite naive we just assumed wildlife would take care of itself and uh, <laughs> what we're learning that in that even in a in a 20 thousand acre space and um, we used to have to manage uh, wildlife so it does take <laughs> hang on i've got the bloody dog Yeah, making noise hang
0: <laughs> on no worries
1: let me just try let me try putting her on my lap she's uh, injured herself so now she's whining oh hey. So let's try this again. <laughs> um, so, just to loop back. So, uh, what a lot of people don't realize is that even on a 20,000 acre space, uh, wildlife does need to be managed. And, um, you know, these are, are big systems that don't function by themselves until we get to, to much bigger space, probably triple or quadruple the size that we currently are now. Um, so in the meantime, we've had to bring in ecologists and we've had to bring in security teams and we've had to you know, bring in land managers, um, which are all skills that we didn't have to begin with. Uh, we did our best as a collective uh, in the early days. But as we've matured, we've obviously brought in uh, more specialized skill sets in those positions. And all of that costs money. And. Um, and, and these islands of conservation, I call them, which is the sort of status we've got to so far, they are doing well, but they, they need a, a heck of a lot of management. Um, and the principle is that as we expand and grow to, to sizes much bigger than what we are now um, collectively, then the, the amount of manipulating required in those ecosystems will decrease. Yeah, it's kind of like. Um, sorry, man. I mean, let me let me interrupt you there quickly. I'm just going okay. to take this dog to the other side of the house, and I'll be back. Okay, no worries. Okay, okay sorry, Mike.
0: No so worries. Well,
1: when is is moaning. Okay, I, I understand. Uh, where were we? <laughs> um,
0: okay, so where was where was the last spot? There it was uh, the connected spaces and expenses, right? So, yep. Um, okay, so, yeah, so I you know. One of the other things that comes with this space is a lot of folks don't understand that. Okay. So an ecologist, that's a full salary, um, an anti-poaching ranger, that's a full salary, vehicle budgets, vehicle repairs, vehicles themselves, all of a sudden to manage a a space uh, like Amacala, you're looking at quite an expensive operation to be part of the ecotourism space to have positive input and output for conservation. Um, One of the things that came to mind is um, for folks that don't know um, South Africa or Africa in general, um, South Africa is very much, it's very similar to California or the United States in the aspect of how people live everywhere. And then the wildlife spaces are contained or the wild reserves are contained to these zones and they've become fractions of what historically uh, they were. And, It's interesting. The one thing that came to mind when you were talking about it does require more intensive management for a smaller reserve, you know, quote smaller reserve. 20,000 hectares is actually or acres is pretty big, Um, but you in two seasons can max out in capacity for grazing or if you have uh, a higher population of elephants, they could be knocking more trees down or if you have too many white rhino on the reserve. So you have to be in there uh, or in the other side, if you have too many predators, um, they'll start to <laughs> hammer the species that you don't necessarily want them to to tackle too much. Um, it kind of reminds me of like a small fish tank, even though they're really cool, is very difficult to keep up in compared to a larger fish tank that has a lot more um, robust uh, features that balance the little changes. So, like if something is to pass away or to expand. There's, there's a bigger, a bigger buffer zone. Um, but what's really cool about all this is, um, this next factor that we've all been working on. So, um, if we go back in time again, so we're talking, um, you're working as a wildlife vet, um, you have the Tandy incident, you work on that. Um, I'm at that time in the North of the country working in kind of one of the hot spots as a ranger. And, um, I hear about that. Then six months later, a friend of mine is now working at Amacala and says, Hey, you should come down at some point and see if you can help out. I remember in our first meeting, uh, at the little, uh, kids education center there that, we aligned on so many thoughts that at that point in time it did i didn't seem to be able to connect with anybody truly in the bigger sense about hey so right now we're dealing with like this big fire like there's a lot of heat on us because of this poaching uh, uptick so a lot of people are in the now and they can't think about the future but in the future to stabilize this issue of habitat conservation and rhino conservation um, we need to f- start figuring out more space more collaboration and I was seeing issues in the north of the country with the islands island nations um, of reserves being you know next to each other but not participating or collaborating with each other and that was how the syndicates were really knocking out so many rhinos at the time because uh, if you were to essentially imagine a bunch of businesses side by side and one's getting robbed each night the one who's getting robbed isn't saying anything about it isn't talking to the neighbors about it isn't helping the neighbors with it and then the neighbor across the street gets hit and then before you know it not only is each rhino lost a tragedy for conservation and the species but each rhino lost is is a power gain for the syndicate so they were getting stronger and more collective Uh, in how they attacked and manipulated the situations. Um, So now fast forward into the Eastern Cape. Uh, There's a very good structure of collaboration. So uh, GCF fits into the rhino conservation and anti-poaching space and community based conservation space, uh, as well as aiding in the veterinary and rewilding space with a lot of the projects overlapping with yourself and many other of the reserves down there. But Uh, I think the most exciting thing is, is now being really good friends and partners with Amakala and Karika and having these joint goals. The next big move here is really exciting because Karika has a very similar history to Amakala in the aspects of family bought it, changed the land, rewilded it, now it's bigger. And there just happens to be a corridor that's been identified between Amakala and Carica and uh, step into the stage, uh, CLI, uh, which is Conservation Landscapes Institute, right? That's what we're calling it. Correct. Okay. Yeah. So, and the new goal is what I would say is puzzle pieces of rewilding so that in the bigger goal, Amakala can connect to Karika through this corridor, which is the Bushman's Corridor, which is also part of a bigger template so that uh, Great Fish River and Addo Elephant Park and several other of the private reserves start to create connective land masses, whether that's by land swaps and trades with people who already own the land like farmers or private landowners who just haven't done anything with it uh, so that this space acquisition can be done in a way that benefits the the wildlife and the ecotourism focus of the Eastern Cape. Um, and I, I just feel like it's really exciting because now uh, we are actually on the GCF participation. We're a full year into the physical application of our involvement Specifically, starting on the Karika side. Um, and I know Amakala and CLI, and we just all met so that we can start pushing this way. You guys have your formulated plan, the maps there, everything's come in so people can see it. Um, like, what is, <laughs> I guess, with, with these, these, uh, these trend-setting uh, type moves, what has been the response by some of the immediate, uh, <laughs> I guess the the first interactions with some of your neighbors to this? Like, um, oh, oh boy, the folds are doing it again. Or, you know, like there's there's this movement, um, you know, from the outside world of uh, the public, a lot of folks think, oh, it'd be a no-brainer. I, of course they want to rewild and jump in, but people understand that Livelihoods are at stake. Private land. What's the loss and benefit? You know, you know, it's not so cut and dry. This is actually extremely mm. complicated conservation. Um, so, what have you experienced so far from your some of your initial meetings uh, and and pitches, if you will?
1: Yeah, Mark, I think uh, you touch on a, on a lot of very important points there. Um, the first thing is. Uh, you know, as people often like to be individualistic in their approach, uh, going back to, you know, your early experiences of, of the poaching crisis. Um, and I think there needs to be a fundamental desire to recognize or, or to want to work together with with fellow businesses, fellow humans, fellow communities um if you if you uh, see that th- your future is brighter together than, than, than as an individual, then then I think um, we can do things um, a lot better together. But if you uh, like your autonomy, or you you know you want to just live on your own little island, then then that's, that's okay. But it's it's not going to work, I believe, for the bigger picture of what this world requires. So I think fundamentally um, the first question that we ask or that we bring up in a conversation with anyone um, within the vision and this footprint that we're working with, which, which by the way, is a, a 2 million acre footprint. So they're in the complexity yeah, and, and, and the sort of enormity of it is, do you see a, a future continuing to do what you're doing? Um, and a lot of, Us uh, and like a lot of other people in the world, I think are are too now. Are very worried about our future. We're very worried about big issues like climate change, like biodiversity crisis, inequality, uh, you know, poverty. These are these are things that are going to make our children's lives miserable. Um, And I think most educated people around the world recognize that we can't keep doing what we have been doing for the last. Half a century, or maybe even a whole century, um, without causing significant pain and discomfort to the next generation. So, with that backdrop, as 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 tough as it is to sort of confront that that question, uh, a lot of people, you know, their first answer is no, we can't keep doing what we do. Um, and that's a good place to start because it means that people are are open to a conversation and they're open to. The, the the fact that we have to change something has to change. Um, the next big challenge is to bring a better alternative, um, and that could be in a conversation with a community that that could be collaborating with poachers, um, or it could be a conversation we have with a landowner that is you know currently a domestic farmer or an agricultural person who's just not making ends meet, and and those life is becoming more and more challenging. Um, you have to be able to bring alternatives. Uh, and those alternatives must seem better uh, for those people than, than their current situation is. And And that's where uh, linking our vision, which is really to restore functional ecosystems, that's our, our sort of bedrock of, of the vision here, uh, because we we recognize that our ecosystems are dysfunctional. You know, we've... We've created a dysfunctional natural landscape um, because of what we've done. And that really means that it's unsustainable and it's going to be less and less supportive to our human endeavors in the future if we don't do something about restoring functionality to that. Um, so, so, yeah, that's a big point so, there because, so yeah, that's yeah. The,
0: <laughs> <it's> hard. <laughs>
1: Yeah, so, you know, people have to recognize that. If they don't recognize those fundamental things, then we sort of move on to the next person and the next person and the next person. Um, But sooner or later, you find a sort of critical mass of people um, that that can see that and, and really believe that there's a problem and we need to do something about it. We do not presume to know all the answers, so we don't arrive and say, you know, we've got a plan and this is what we must do um the next conversation is really with the various stakeholders and saying you know what can we do together um, and that usually begins with a whole lot of people saying this is what I sh- think we should do and, and and someone else will have a different opinion um, and that <laughs> takes time that's a it's a conversation over many uh, campfires and and maybe even beers and briars. and um, but at some stage, you know, those conversations start to settle down. There's usually a, a, a void in, in resources. Uh, who's going to pay for it? Where's the money going to come from? How do we create additional revenue streams? Um, how do we limit risk? Uh, and, and and at that stage, often we then, uh, to try and facilitate that process, need to bring in um, specialists and consultants some of whom would have been down this road before in another part of Africa or another part of the world, uh, who can then you know, start to change perceptions and, and, and piece together the mindset, really, of what that looks like. Uh, in parallel with that, we have this sort of spatial vision of what it could be. Um, that's not to say you know, we have the answer, but it's, it's looking at it geographically Um, In this 2 million acre footprint, we look at, at some, you know, what do we have? What do we have? What are our sort of building blocks that we have to work with? And one of them is our biodiversity. So we live in a very biodiverse part of a very biodiverse country. And that's a good thing. But we also acknowledge that much of our biodiversity is already severely degraded. So we've, we've already done the science to zone where the most important biodiversity um, uh, spaces are. Then we looked at river systems, uh, because if you don't get your river systems right, you, you do not achieve functional ecosystems. Uh, we then looked at, at where these islands of conservation are that have, that have sprung up over the last two to three decades, uh, and those are state and private. And then we sort of overlay those pieces and and look at the, the low hanging fruit. So we're we're the most likely places that uh, we could create connectivity, which means corridors, and then corridors grow into landscapes. Um, and one of those um, likely places is this link between Amakala Game Reserve and karikagam Game Reserve. So you know that is one of our priority corridors, one of our priority landscapes, um, and that's where. The conversation with someone like you is is very easy to have because you understand Kariha and you understand amakala and now we just have to understand uh the twenty thousand hectare piece in between that uh that we think is so exciting to to develop and to and to build and restore and connect yeah it's
0: it's um uh, you know again being uh, coming into the process years ago um well, and and now getting to this point, it is exciting to be, you know, running with this progress. Um, There were a couple things in there uh, from what you just spoke about that actually sparked memories of some things that are important. So there, you know, there's two, there, there, there's more than one stakeholder type in um, conservation and not everybody essentially sees them part themselves, part of this conservation um, roadmap or theory. So this cold, contact conversation, you're essentially uh, finding the path of least resistant resistance to then connect these puzzles and kind of assemble what you have at hand. And the strength between the partnerships between Amagala and Karika is not a path of least resistance. It's like the shining beacon of hope to which we can show others like, hey, it's possible this has been done. This is what we're going to do. And it becomes a proof in the pudding or a, a, a template. So folks can be like, okay, it's not so scary. Um, and there's two things I <laughs> specifically remember in some of these is um, one, not everybody who even is part of a reserve wants it to be bigger because they've immediately worried about, well, who's going to pay for staff and fence lines are super expensive and we're going to need more Rangers. And, you know, all of a sudden, it becomes overwhelming, but if you can have that conversation and then show them, Hey, this is how it's done. And then the, the foundations and the nonprofits take that space of extra land, extra management, extra everything. Then all of a sudden it's not this huge, scary thing because one person doesn't feel like it's all on their shoulders. Um, So I, the fence line drop. um, So recently Carica dropped, one fence line, which was part of phase one in the habitat expansion on Carica, which basically defragmented their own reserve spaces. And, uh, Phil and Trish Liggett were the, the, the front runners of that one. And then GCF did a couple of the rhino procedures and collars. And of course we're doing the anti-poaching side. Sorry, excuse me. Um, but we just finished a next, uh, the next big block in that, which is now going to take, about nine months to do, but um, uh, for those listening, Dr. Folds, myself, Katie Peterson, Mario Aldacola, and Trent Underwood were all uh, part of a panel for world rhino day. And that was our signature big launch day for um, we had filmed about this uh, habitat expansion. We had then um, filmed about the rhino conservation details and then pitched the first in-person event. And at that event, we covered the uh, collective cost to do the entire next phase for Curica. but what's more exciting about that is is those two things had to happen so that we can start working towards the corridor aspect. And now, uh, as of the last time uh, Dr. Folds and I were together, we had a meeting with CLI Peter Chadwick. We went through all of this, um, all of these puzzle pieces, and now we're at the turn where we can start to (laughs) kind of push towards each reserve can push towards the middle and try to gap in there um, and tackle these different things. Um, Which again, it sounds, in theory, it sounds simple, but it's once you're looking at it, so complicated. Um, One of the other stakeholders in this are the uh, local communities. Now, um, a a couple of times, talking about this with folks, people were worried about the local communities and representation and their land and stuff. And um, right now, none of that corridor space incorporates any of uh, their land ownership. However, they grow to benefit from all of this because of our community development programs that are bringing them in. Um, And one of the exciting aspects about the communities surrounding Amakala, Karika, and all of these other spaces in between the reserves in the Eastern Cape is they they are starting to really understand the conservation benefit. And um, Will, you could probably speak to this a little bit further. I got I got the footnote update of this, but um, one of the local communities just ratted out one of the big poachers who had escaped from the um, the jail in the Eastern Cape. Uh, one of the high priority ones. And I believe, uh, was it, I can't remember which reserve it was, but um, I don't want to misquote it, but I, I understand that um, they they read them out and then there was a giant community bribe provided by Indalo. Um, could you speak a little bit to that? Uh, what was really recent, it was like only two weeks ago, I think.
1: Yeah, so <laughs> interesting turn of events. Um, So the the first tragedy was that our correctional services, our our prisons, allowed five rhino um, poachers, they were actually convicted poachers, uh, pending sentencing, uh, to escape from one of our prisons. And um, within two weeks of that event, the Seven Fountains community, who is a a fairly large rural community, living adjacent to the Lalibela Game Reserve and the Pumba Game Reserve, um, they actually ratted out uh, one of these guys that that was roaming around the rural countryside. Um, That's which awesome. was a remarkable event. You know, I know that those reserves um, have dedicated a lot of their time to trying to improve conditions in those communities. A lot of the, the people that live in those communities are employed by those two game reserves. So... They've they've uh, experienced firsthand the benefits um, of ecotourism, but they've also been through rough times lately. You know, with COVID, um, there just wasn't tourism for a for a period, and then and our tourism. I think we we're only just over fifty percent occupancy compared to what we were pre-COVID. So uh, those communities have felt the brunt of uh, a global pandemic and the implications. To tourism of that. Uh, and yet, there were still members of those communities that were prepared to turn their back on crime, and in this case, specifically, uh, rhino poaching, which was a formidable, uh, I think, indication of their sentiments towards this sort of crime. Um, yeah, and in lieu of that, just to thank the community, um, Lalibela and, and their neighbors, Pumba, sort of spearheaded a a thank you briar, which in our case is a, a sort of a, a barbecue type of event, um, just acknowledge this, um, amazing, um, gesture really by, by the community that, uh, that they'd done, um, to, to finger out these guys and get them arrested and, and get them back in jail.
0: You know, I, it's, I can't under, like, th- this is like a huge achievement, um, essentially one of the reasons for those listening again, um, the poaching situation is so rough further North in the country is there is a lot of poverty and unemployment and, um, disjointed community spaces. And they're right on the borders of the Kruger national park and several, several other major areas, like greater Kruger and, These are not small community spaces. We're talking millions of people. And the one of the ways that the cynic, rhino syndicates work their way into um, taking advantage of a situation is the uh, the Robin Hood complex, essentially us versus them, and in this case, the community versus the parks, or it's only one rhino. And so you get these seasoned gang members recruiting young young men, bringing them into the space, and then they recruit others to be tip-offs and informant folks, and they infiltrate lodges, the gates, uh, the gate guard situations, the travel company providers, the tour pickups and drop-offs, and before you know it, you have this nasty nest of syndicate operations going on. So to have the local community... Take the risk, first of all, because this could backfire in, in an aspect of they don't necessarily know if this person who's known to be dangerous is going to retaliate in some aspect. But we're talking about, I believe over 200 people came to that uh, that thank you, Bri, which was really cool. Um, mm. But th- an entire community stepped forward and said, we understand the value of conservation and our jobs, in the community space, in our integration to the land and everything that's involved. And we don't want it here. And that that is so big because that's how that's another giant building block of success for conservation as a whole. Because had they hid that player, for sure, we would have been dealing with more poaching incidents at this moment. Cause that person was very seasoned in. Um, all things Rhino poaching. Um, So it's, it's a, it's such a, it's like a footnote in in the aspect of like, it was a blip on the radar. It happened, but it, the, the weight of that success is massive because it shows so many other parallels and successes and integrations and time and effort that came back to, to provide for conservation and, and the community itself. Um, so that's that was really cool um and these are things that tie into these next plays with the habitat expansions and the land spaces is is making sure we continue to incorporate uh the underserved communities the indigenous communities and uh, employ and elevate all of those folks from different spaces and um i mean we can see it across the eastern cape to Mm -hmm. the nth degree it's it's very cool um
1: yeah, I think um, just to to butt in there, Mike, we uh, we recognise that that the socioeconomic situation in the Eastern Cape is not good. Um, you know, in spite of what tourism mm-hmm. has done, I think it's only a drop in the ocean really uh, in improving the lives of some people. Um, Pre-COVID, our unemployment rate was forty-five percent in this province. Um, so you, you've got possibly a, a landmass, maybe 20% of, of the whole country that, that are living, existing on, on a 45% employment rate. So that is a massive challenge for all of us. Uh, we know the, the benefits that tourism can bring to communities, um, but we need to scale that. Uh, and, and those benefits exceed the benefits that farming was doing on, on the same properties that, that we've rewilded. Uh, but that has to be scaled at the same time. We've also got to take care of food security. We can't turn it all into a you know, big five game reserve area. So the planning and the integration of um, biodiversity restoration as well as socioeconomics has to be done very carefully and very mindfully. But uh, I'm extremely confident that we can deliver the better alternatives that, that I spoke about earlier um, through this biodiversity restoration integrated with the needs and the prospects of communities. Um, it's not going to happen overnight, unfortunately, which is what the politicians will, will love to promise their voters. Um, but uh, <laughs> you know, when we see a little incident like this where this community turned their back on a, on a poacher, that is a a good indicator of of things to come and and the fact that there are communities out there that recognize that there's a better way um by keeping these natural assets alive um so yeah a positive Uh, indication but still uh, an enormous amount of work to do in the community space
0: yeah that's that's a good point yeah like um so the unemployment rate and um, you know the reserves don't have the capacity at this point to employ you know thousands of people if you will. It's not as if it was like Disneyland or something like that. Again, the the financial um, burden is on the reserves um, again. So this is a good spot for the nonprofits to create bridges between the community and the land spaces. Um, I know that a majority of the reserves in Eastern Cape have a community project with community coaches, whether that's in sports or mentorship or um, community gardens and integrated education opportunities and advancements into vocational trainings. Um, so we, we as GCF have that with several of our reserve partners um, in Southern Africa, and um, we see the benefit in it quite a bit. Um, right off the bat, which is really interesting, you know, you see, for example, um, on average, a sole ranger or the, uh, we'll call him the sole bread, he or she would be the sole breadwinner of the family, is supporting 10 to 12 people on average in these rural community spaces. And that goes to that unemployment factor. Um, so we would love to, of course, expand that to, You know, half, so doubling the employment opportunity maybe in the next 20 years. Space Um, again, people are always like, That's a great idea, I love that, but that doesn't always equal funding. Um, Funding and fundraising is always very difficult. Um, People might love the idea and embrace it, but then they hit like on a post and they're done with that thought for the day. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, these in depth stories are important to share and uh, explain. That's why I like the podcast space so much because we can actually have this long conversation uh, for folks listening to understand um, how even just a five dollar donation really actually helps quite a bit, uh, especially now with the uh, U.S. dollar to rand conversion being one dollar one U.S. dollar to about seventeen or eighteen South African dollars, Um, and employment in the space is big because. we have everybody from cooks and house staff for cleaning, reception, gate guards, rangers, ecologists, reserve managers, anti-poaching managers, um, veterinary staff, uh, individual researchers in in incorporating that space into this realm between all these other wild spaces, the nonprofits involved and the community there's a lot of opportunity for positive growth so, to complement what you're saying, Will, about this footstep mold to go forward. Um, it, it has a lot of positive, fo- positive uh, impact for all stakeholders. Um, even if we only do it a, a step at a time, it's still worth it because we're, we're, we're positively changing lives and saving wildlife at the same time as we move forward. It's not like we have to put all these pieces together and then it starts to benefit each incremental step really does have a positive output, whether that's for the reintroduction of a species, the more space and biodiversity of a species, the defragmentation of habitat, the, uh, interconnectivity between genetics, between different reserves and different pockets of animals, the labor involved in that management. Um, you know, you name it, (laughs) it keeps going. Um, yeah, it's just a big space.
1: We often uh, talk about the the power of catalytic funding, which is um, which is what is so important to us. Um, you know, at the end of the day, it, uh, it it's important to create jobs, but but someone's got to pay for those salaries um, in perpetuity, really. Uh, to have philanthropic funding around is important, but that cannot be the way that the whole system is built um, because it, it won't be sustainable. So, yeah, we, we have a vision, and that vision is to amplify the, the funding streams um, so that they are not entirely dependent, which is the current situation, on, uh, on traveling internationals predominantly, which is you know a tourism model, um, we want to build diversity and resilience, not just on the natural side of things um, for nature, but also on the socioeconomic side of things. Um, and that really involves creating skill sets for people because that means that they are they have an opportunity to put their hand up and say, you know, I can make a positive contribution and, and I can find a place where I'm getting paid to do that and, and paid much better than, than what they have been in the past, um, but but that's really going to boil down to bringing in, in new revenue streams, and yeah, those that. revenue streams really tap into what the world needs to to fix a broken world. Um, that's a, it's about restoring biodiversity. We we've lost seventy percent of this world's biodiversity, and and we know we are on a trajectory that is that is catastrophic unless we can turn that statistic around but it it requires people on the ground working really hard in a um, a strategic and coordinated manner to fix biodiversity, Uh, and therein lies the, the need for skills. So if we can use catalytic funding, call it philanthropic funding initially, to create those skills, and we have a vision to plug those skills into, you know, we can restore the biodiversity that then becomes the foundation for the sustainable income and the sustainable jobs, uh, which is a win-win for the world because we are contributing positively to what the planet needs and, and, and simultaneously um, fixing people's futures. We, we're literally giving them uh, some hope and we're giving them a future in, in something that is of benefit not just to ourselves locally but but to the the greater global community so that's what that what I find so exciting by this category of solutions that we call nature-based solutions because they provide opportunities and they also strengthen the sustainable foundation that the whole planet needs um, not just the benefit to to the local system big time yeah that's
0: hammer on the nail right there that nails it um with with the current cli uh karika expansion what's the next step for Amakala right now what's the next um move i mean there's not a internal fence line necessarily that works for you guys to drop at this moment right
1: yeah so uh, within Amakala, the next big uh, challenge is to link the spaces that are on the southern side of the the public road, the the N2 um, highway. It's one of our national arteries uh, to the space to the north, and and we do have a, a, a call it a, a natural underpass, which is a bridge that the that the road takes over one of our, uh, in fact, the river that links Amakala to Karaka. So that underpass is uh, very important for us. That's, that's our, our primary focus in terms of building a landscape. The next step is to drop the fence between our reserve and, and the, the the closest protected environment, which, which is Lalibela Game Reserve. Um, so we are in discussions with that reserve, um, and that'll be an important proof of concept. Uh, if we can get that right, then I think... You know, all those out there that have been talking for 20 years. Sorry, I'm going to stop that for a second. (laughs) We've got the second dog kicking off here. (laughs) All those out there that have been uh, a little bit skeptical about whether this enormous vision can actually happen, Um, they really need to see these fences coming down between substantial um, sizes of, of property. And in this case, we're talking about protected environments. So those two things, in my mind, have to happen in 2023 um, to get the momentum into the system. And then as far as uh, CLI and, and specifically land around Tanglewood, we, we're busy growing that. We've, we've doubled the footprint of Tanglewood in 12 months. And we'd like to keep on doubling, you know, year on year as the momentum builds. Uh, and then, as you've already alluded to, at the bottom end of the river where Karikha Game Reserve is, the fences are coming down and that momentum has has been demonstrated very tangibly through the expansion of a new piece of land and and the the moving of fences to create more uh, space within um, Kariga and and including the the next adjoining property so there there's a lot's happening we've got proof of concept in Kareja and Amakala and we've got progress and progress feeds um and creates energy uh, and and i've no doubt that this momentum will will just continue to snowball now
0: absolutely yeah the the progress feels amazing to have at this point and to be uh, moving so fast with it i guess is the best way to say it sometimes it feels like things take forever uh, from the chair of being in the field and in the fundraising side, cause you just wish so many more people were involved and cared. Um, but this is an exciting time for sure to be pushing all this forward. Um, what is for the Amakala next step? What is, what is the projected cost, uh, for that next kind of puzzle piece for you guys to make your move, um, initially for that, that, um, underpass and, and piece of land?
1: Yeah, I'm just doing the maths here quickly. <laughs> so the underpass, <laughs> uh, the cost of, of fleshing out the, that underpass is $25,000. Um, it's predominantly a, a re-fencing exercise where we, we've got four fences, uh, you know, two on either side of the highway that have to be realigned so we can create um, this open space under the highway for the animals to get across from the southern section to the northern section. Um, so that's the most important phase there. And then the, the landowner discussions that link Amakala to Lalibela are already underway, um, but there are two um, very willing landowners um, that, that would provide the space to create the first corridor between those two reserves. Um, but they don't necessarily want that land to be incorporated into a game reserve, but they're quite happy for it to be included as a corridor just to provide the connectivity. So yeah, awesome. they'll, have, they'll have to be compensated for the the, the lack of, of beef farming that that they currently um, are using the land for. Um, I don't have a, a, a price tag on that, but even that uh, bringing those fences down will, will require some some um, realignment of new fences so that we can create you know this adjoining space. And that'll link um, Lalibela, which is 10,000 hectares, to Jamakala, to, to which is 9,000 hectares. So, you know, just doing that, you've got 19,000 hectares, which is probably 50,000 acres. Um, yeah, that's big. On the, on the cards <laughs> with, with willing landowners uh, on both sides uh, and willing landowners in the middle. But we do need that catalytic funding to, to get those connections moving. Um, and and then, as I said, you know, once, once people, you know, who've, who've spoken about this vision for some time now can actually see progress, then that energy starts to grow. And, and that's when it really gets exciting.
0: Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's, it is already so exciting just because it's like, these are like little pieces and I, in, in sometimes in my, uh, fundraising moments of frustration, I'm like, oh, it's just the cost of like a a Honda Civic or something like that. <laughs> you know, I'm like, if only somebody would want to just donate, you know, quote, a Honda Civic, uh, to these massive nature corridor spaces that just are monumentous in their, their impact for people in wildlife. Um, but we're, we're there now. We're like, we're pushing this, this threshold forward. Um, you know, giving Tuesday is next week. Um, I'm not sure about you guys. We 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 think it's going to be a little bit of a quieter Giving Tuesday. Um, there's a lot, of, obviously, a lot of humanitarian specific I- issues in the world right now that we think are probably going to vacuum funding uh, towards again. But uh, even if there's a threshold to push, you know, even another fence line or a specific Rhino move, it's always a game of moving forward. Um, what have you? What has been your experience of? in in recent times with the kind of uh i don't know rebound of of staff with with after covid because um, i i know during covid um essentially everybody it was full hazard mode everywhere um you know staff not on pay for some reserves half the staff being let go um you know I know you said you guys have kind of recovered about 50% on average of what that was before. But what does it look like now with the tourism space after COVID and hiring space and kind of general operations in the reserve? And how is that looking in the veterinary side? Like what what's changed in that as well?
1: Yeah, um, it, it obviously has been very tough. Uh, all companies involved in tourism have had to borrow to the hilt mean, we got to a point where um, the government, the banks, would simply not lend us another cent. Um, my family, we even put out a sort of SOS on our social network to say, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll take any advanced um, payments on holiday and, and, and honour that uh, for the next five years, if if we have to, just to try and get some funding in. Fortunately, some, some very kind people responded to that. Um, just to be able to give, and this was January of this year when, when our schools go back to, to the start of their year, just to give our staff money to buy their kids clothing so they could start school and books and shoes, you know, just the real basic fundamentals. Real yeah. basics. Yeah. Um. So we've survived. Um. We did lose some key staff members, uh, who sort of looked at the future of tourism and thought, you know, they they were normally sort of uh, staff in their late twenties, early thirties who who needed to you know raise a family and and didn't see the prospects of tourism bouncing back very quickly, as being strong, and so they moved into agricultural sectors and. And some other commercial sectors that were not as badly affected by travel, um, so we've lost, you know, a big chunk of our skill set, and and we're now having to rebuild, um, which is sad in a way, um, and that can only be done through tourism uh, at the moment. So it is tough, but we are recovering. At least there's hope now. Where for many months, you know, we were looking at at a very bleak, dark um, picture ahead of us, but but now we can see that tourism is recovering. Uh, a lot of people want to travel, particularly to uh, safari travel, because they've felt caged for for over two years, and they and they want to get into an outdoor experience, and they also want to get involved in experiences that provide a better future for for themselves and their their kids. So I think. Um in theory, I think uh, safari destinations um, stack up to to uh, a good recovery. The, the possibility is definitely there. Um, one struggle we're having at the moment is just that the airlines have not recovered well enough mm. to provide those conduits to get the, uh, the tourists who want to come uh, in yeah, quick enough. So we are struggling with, with some of the carriers and, and just flight availability, and, and that would certainly help us recover a lot quicker um but then on on the human side you know humans are incredibly resilient um and the minute there's hope suddenly the mood has changed and and so that optimism is is definitely back um you know it's fantastic to have some tourists back and i think those tourists are, are seeing the delight and the appreciation from our staff um, and in having the, this privilege of, of having you know people back uh, from other parts of the world uh, and and the pride in being able to share the fact that we have kept things going. you know we have uh, kept the, the wild spaces and the animals intact. we have managed to keep our poaching down to uh, absolute minimum and, and I say that touching wood, and same (laughs) and and so you know our communities and our staff are very proud of that fact and and we love to show that off to people that are coming to visit and give them the time of their lives which is what we're doing
0: yeah it's a it's been a I, i when you were referencing those months of like stagnant dark no hope i i have a very strong memory of that still i mean it's you know that long ago <laughs> but it's it's also nice to feel this uh breath of fresh air of like lodges getting guests again and eco tours that gcs been running going back online again and um you know visiting you and visiting um carica and uh, several mm-hmm. other locations on the eastern cape and there is a lot of positive joy that comes out of it. You can see it in the staff. You can see it obviously in the guests. um, Yeah. But but the impact of that.
1: um, Yeah. I I think it's just important to note that in those dark days, um, you know, people like yourselves, organizations like GCF, um, you know, really stretched out your hand into your networks and, and people did respond. So the fundraising was fantastic, not just for the funding that it delivered, but I think the, the message that got through to, to our key personnel who were just holding the ship together by our threads was that there are people in the world that care. Um, everyone understood the situation we were in. We understood that it wasn't our faults um, that this is, that happened. Um, but we appreciated that there were communities and individuals on the other side of the planet that recognized this um, important work of conservation that was happening here and were prepared to, to help us. And just the value of that far exceeded the monetary value um, because that energized and, and kept people going when we really needed them to keep going.
0: Yeah, I man, I remember that. That was... a uh... So we had, we had several things. We had our key galas and we did the, the Amacala Eco tour packages. Um, and then I remember doing, um, thank, thank God, uh, Coyote Peterson and crew was so cool. They came in and we did the Rhino Conservation Challenge, which was the next big hmm. push in on, on that stuff. But yeah, oh man, I remember it was, I was so thankful people responded um, in such a, really tough time um but also like um i do remember like the the impact on on the staff on either side of the world um and yeah sometimes just knowing somebody's got your back and is there to support you and we're gonna make it through it and we're all gonna survive that kind of thing um Mm. yeah that's the that's that kind of momentum i guess that's kind of a parallel to just rhino conservation in general it's definitely not you know butterflies and sunshine it's a very difficult complicated and uh unforgiving realm of conservation um so but now you know again we we turn that coin we have the hope and see it forward um and then and then in your space as a a wildlife that what i mean what was what was pre-covid covid COVID, and then post-covid kind of like then that arc um i know I know we kept you busy with some stuff, but I know we're a fraction of what you have going on in your, your daily activities, or sorry, your weekly activities.
1: Yeah, so in, in my life as a, as a wildlife vet, um, you know, the last seven years in our part of the country has been taken up by quite a severe drought. It's the worst drought we've had since the 80s. So that was already putting pressure on um, natural systems even before COVID came along. Um, so, so things were tough there. We could we could see our our, our habitats were taking strain. Uh, with that, you know, some of the animal species were taking strain. A lot of our reserves had to start um, supplementing animals just to keep certain key species going during those drought years. And then COVID came along, and and in a in a conservation system that is entirely dependent on tourism, uh, fundamentally, it it does mean that. Uh, my clients, my wildlife clients, had to look at at their budgets and, and some things just had to get cut. Um, and one of those was, was you know, veterinary expenses. Um, yeah. Another one was security. Uh, so that's why we reached out to you guys to help us with uh, tracking devices, not just to keep um, the sort of current technology moving, but also to help us find new technology Which would make uh, a budget, a shrinking budget, as effective and hopefully even more effective. Um, So, one of the things that are, you know, one of the silver linings to COVID is that we've had to reinvent the way we we cut up our uh, shrinking slices of pie, our budgets, um, (laughs) and and to make everything a lot more streamlined and economical. and, and then we've also had to look at um, you know what technology is out there and, and how we can integrate that better into the systems that we have and there's some really exciting things now that are emerging out of that and I think uh, technology will will certainly start um, coming through quite hard now which is is great um, and when we do build back and uh, you know, I don't like to use the term build back better because it's it has been overused, but I, I really do think that off the back of this necessary streamlining, as we recover our budgets, we will get to positions where you know the, the money that we had before, uh, when that gets restored, we will be doing things um, twice as, as good and, and twice as fast. So uh, there will be a silver lining to this all um, when we, we're back uh, firing on all eight cylinders again. <laughs> and, um, and that, that's, that's going to be exciting. Yeah, looking forward to it.
0: Yeah. So that's actually a really good point. Um, I forgot that actually all developed during COVID. Um, so that was the new tracking devices with old technology and, or new tracking devices with adapted new technology involved. So, um, certain callers and tagging devices that have solar panels on them now and the integration of LoRa systems with Mm -hmm. earth ranger and the towers um that setup has really space age it's the only space age technology i think we have in conservation which is kind of funny because it's like you know there's access to drones drones but they're not military drones and they don't function the way that people think they do on the internet um you know so these lora systems where a tag can be put on or sorry a tracking device can be put on an animal actually functions in the realm of what people assume it would, which is you can actually see where it was, where it went, and you can see pressure maps. And there's scaled entry into the program so we can monitor where rangers are. We can get kilometers. And there's indicator Mm -hmm. devices that you can put on, like fuel tanks and or um, solar panels out in the field so you can monitor heat or levels and all sorts of stuff, which is amazing because it is a huge advancement because simple things like if you've got a fuel station or a fuel pump out on the far side of the reserve, knowing when that thing is low or if it's getting messed with, um, you don't have to send people out and that's not hours of time and vehicle fuel and all the things above Same thing in, in the monitoring aspect, instead of spending two to three hours looking for key species, before you find them, you Mm. can reference pressure maps and you're saving that valuable time and that time saved equals money saved with fuel and other costs. And um, then the protection aspect, you know, surgical precision of where to place your limited resources and assets, your rangers and protection services, um, to better be prepared for different times of, uh, pressure or threats and or where you need to be with external factors you know things that like a full moon for poaching incidents or uh, construction issue like constructions and renovations on the property and how that plays into certain species you know th- that's a really good point that that silver lining of technology it was a big one that was mm. actually really exciting to see all that come together and um, I mean I look at my earth ranger Almost every day, I, I seriously love it. Especially if if I'm not in the field and I'm I'm missing the the daily walks and patrols or the action, I'm I'm signed in on the Earth Ranger, just looking to see if you know what what weather pa- pattern changed the behavior of the carnivores or you know the the density of the rhinos, for example, or something like that. Yeah. Um, so those are super cool. Um, have you used the Laura system? tags with earth ranger yet to um expedite your uh veterinary procedures for taggings uh or sorry for uh, you know health checks or collar replacements or uh horn trims anything like that has it come in yet
1: yeah look i can i can give you positive and and negative examples but they all speak to the value of this of this technology um, i think Fundamentally, what has um, taken a, a giant step forward for us in the last two to three years now is that Laura's has given us um, an introduction into better situational awareness. Um, mm. if, you, if you understand what's happening out there, you can utilize your limited resources so much better, as you've just said. Um, but one of the examples... Um, I can give you is, is on this new section of Kareja where you have helped to take these fences down. Uh, we introduced rhino there, I think it was two years ago, uh, using the old sort of tracker technology. Um, yeah, VHF. We, we started putting LoRa devices on some of those rhino, um, and then we got down to the last female in her calf, which didn't have a LoRa device on. Um, and, and, you know, you've been there, you know how challenging that terrain is. Uh, oh, yeah, but, but we had to fly three times uh, to find that animal. Um, and we burnt through, I think it was uh, 45,000 rand. That's, that's got to be, uh, <laughs> well, you'd have to do the sums for everyone. Um, but a, a, a heck of a lot of fuel, uh, that, is, that is probably yeah. five times more flying time than we would have done um, on the other animals because we knew where they were. You know, and that's just a, a complete waste of, of finance because we didn't have devices and, and we didn't know where they were. So we could we narrow narrow that search area down. And so that's
0: twenty five hundred dollars uh US currency, which is a it's a painful price tag um in comparison to like a normal day of procedures where maybe the helicopter budget uh is eight hundred, nine hundred thousand bucks for two to three animals. Um, that's that's a painful hit.
1: Yeah, so you know, had that technology been on that animal, we would have saved uh, most of that. It still would have t- taken um, some chopper time, but we could have gone straight to the last known location, narrowed down the search area, and I've no doubt uh, we would have picked it up immediately, as we've had to do in 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 some of the others where we've noticed that you know there could be a problem, and we can we can now just send the ground teams there with a a thermal drone and they can verify immediately whether there's an issue and, and report back and, and and we can modify our response you know within a few minutes uh, instead of the old way where we could spend days or or sometimes weeks and in this case multiple flight operations just just trying to locate the animal let alone you know verify if they're okay yeah, so absolutely. yeah, that's, I'm, I'm I'm really excited by that. The the next wave of technology that we'll actually be testing on Kareika for the first time, um, end of this month, is uh, to fit uh, solar power devices on and uh, They have been used in a number of other reserves, but this is the first time that we are integrating these devices with the Kareika Laura system, the Laura WAN system. Um, and the exciting thing about those devices is that they have built-in artificial intelligence um, and they learn the behavior of that animal, that, that individual animal. So basically builds up a, a, a track of normality for that animal. And if, if that particular animal does anything outside of the norm, it sends you degrees of, of warning. So you get a sort of a, a, a red-yellow uh, green type of warning system and depending on the, the, the severity of that change in behaviour um, and that's proving to be really exciting because that could be the closest we have got to um, actually narrowing down that response time when an incident happens uh, so we can get, we immediately know there's a problem um, we, we don't yet have battery technology to be able to track these animals 24-7, uh, 365 days of the year. So so the, the current Laura system gives us certain readings per day. What this system will do is it's it's understanding that behavior, and when it moves outside of the normal, it sends us an immediate message. So we, get, we, we don't get real-time tracking, but we do get real-time abnormality uh, warnings, um, and that's an exciting next chapter to go into
0: yeah that's a big one um uh comically i remember with the battery conversation um i think it was one of the maybe 2017 or 18 when you and i were doing a uh a couple uh speaking engagements and presentations batteries were the focus that we were launching at people like we need help in that battery realm um and solar definitely makes a big difference Uh, i'll be excited to see how these play in and I, i i um have seen the concept, but I haven't seen it in, in hand. Um, Mm. so it'll be really cool to like layer that in and see that, um, I'll be back in South Africa. I'm enjoying a short stay back home right now. Um, (laughs) putting, uh, my stateside life back in order, uh, between my field, uh, work, but I'll be back in January, uh, as one of the lead instructors for the, community selection course and uh i believe we're going to be doing one of the procedures is it's like supposed to happen sometime in the mix of that i believe uh towards the end of the month um that might be cheetahs though that we're we're jumping in on um but yeah i was i mean all these things coming together it's pretty cool and and i believe you guys sent two candidates onto this course is that is my memory excuse me correct for that
1: yeah, um, we have managed to secure some some funding, as you know, um, and, and you guys have been a part of that, but we are sending some community members uh, from the Amakala side um, to participate in this community ranger um, initiative. That's, uh, in my mind, a, a vital aspect because... What we cannot uh, only do out there is, is train um, community members to be security personnel. They've got to be um, they've got to have those skill sets, but they've also got to involve uh, ecology skills, um, management skills and social skills um, so that they can be integrated into our communities, understand the needs of communities as well as the needs of the environment. And be a different set of eyes and ears to, to what we've traditionally trained um, around sort of the rhino space, the ranger space. So I'm really looking forward to seeing more of these candidates come through the system and, and then to be t- deployed out into these protected environments, um, as well as some of the, these new corridor spaces that we're setting up. Uh, I think it's a, a great indicator of how the collaboration is, is starting to happen. And, um, and obviously the funding, you know, to get these balls rolling is, is vital and, and thanks to your organization and, and your sponsors for helping us to achieve that.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, I've got to say thanks to everybody who supports uh, us as well, because, um, we can, we can shout it until we're blue in the face and we know it's going to work, but without. Uh, Our donors and our funders, it doesn't become reality. And we are dependent on our donations uh, to sustain progress and to make more progress. uh, So to push forward. Um, This community course selection has been something we have been working towards actually since 2015 as well in the area, where for years we sent our GCF advanced instructors to do annual training courses for the current and active anti poaching units on all the different reserves but now we uh going back to 2018 had done in the eastern cape the first annual boot camp to which then we did the uh next phases of integration to which now um it's actually the only of its kind uh to date uh because many of the other ranger courses in different countries they throw a casting net across the entire nation or the applicants can be across the entire nation. But we're, we've created a a modular system that teaches um, conservation ranger services by directly going to each of the reserves to which those reserves go and talk to their community spaces and they put forward candidates. So instead of this general cast of maybe the, the big city two hours away, which is Port Elizabeth from Carica, and taking candidates from the city were directly impacting the communities that share the fence lines or the adjacent properties with these reserves and creating a bridge directly in. And it is really powerful. We've, we've seen an extremely positive um, response already from the candidates that have gone through prior, where they've become the hero or champion figure in their own community and you have young kids looking up to them and saying they want to be them and excited to tell their friends about them and we see that on the other side so that makes waves into other aspects of all the other conversations topics we were taking before where they're not sole service employees they have a lot of different hats to wear whether they realize it or not going in and going out of this training and the training's not easy, <laughs> I'll say that. So it is going to be hard for everybody going through it. It's it's designed to be difficult so that we can uh, essentially weed out problem players because um, with the, the back set of knowledge of knowing that did happen and still happens in other areas of the continent where members from syndicates get in. Um, I don't suspect that from our local community spaces yet, but it is something we always... That out, anyways. Um, I know that's always a question I get. Well, what if they send them through? And, and that's true; it does happen. But we have plenty of ways to start, sort that out. Um, but the positive yeah, think- and the big thing is huge.
1: Just a good, a good point that you mention, Mike. Is um, what we have learned? You know, being in the in the su- on the southern tip of, of Africa, uh, from other parts of of South Africa to the north of us, and other countries to the north of South Africa, is is that you have to stay ahead of the wave, big time. Uh, and, and once you allow crime and particularly organised crime to become entrenched in the system, it is extremely difficult to to play catch up from that space. So, uh, what we're really trying to do here with these communities is to embed those alternatives. Um, you know, a better future, better careers, more exciting, more fulfilling. Um, uh, careers into the lives of, of community members so that they are far more resilient to the uh, temptations of crime. Um, and, you know, as we've seen with this community turning their back on, on rhino poaching, you know, that's a fantastic indication that it, it, there, there are some results there. We've still got a, a heck of a long way to go. But the more of these community ranges we can train, integrate, and then employ and provide opportunities, the more difficult it's going to become for organized crime to to get a foothold yeah
0: big time yeah it's it's a it is like a a race of so, sorts in some aspects being ahead of them and knowing their tactics but also listening to the echoed lessons from different countries and seeing what has succeeded and what has failed and and not trying to reinvent wheels that don't need to be reinvented at the same time so there's a lot of cogs that fall into play but it, yeah it's 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 a big, it's a big uh, positive and it's exciting to be where we are now because I do remember uh, in several of our first, you know, throw it at the wall meetings where we're kind of talking about goals and the area and how we want to try to impact all of this. Um, we had these thoughts and ideas and plans going back to 2015, but it was, how do we get here? <laughs> so it's uh Again, it's nice to have survived the COVID wave of troubles and be on this side of the rebound and pushing forward so that we can continue this momentum. Um, I guess as we wrap up here, well, I was going to do, normally Robert's on the podcast. He couldn't make it today. Um, Normally we do a couple fun questions in here as well, just so guests can get a a different experience than the the just the normal conversation stuff that's kind of heavy but um if you find yourself having downtime and you look for downtime what is your favorite thing to do to relax that's separate from all of the things of the work realm
1: <laughs> yeah if you ask my wife she says whatever i do i've got a hidden agenda um <laughs> So my <laughs> my favorite uh, downtime activity is is spending time out there with wildlife. Um, you know, I know I work with wildlife, but uh, in a in an environment where I don't have to be too responsible and, and when the pressure is not too high, so just going out there with a camera. Uh, my my favorite camera to take is, is a is a drone camera. Um, oh yeah. And, you know, especially these new drones with, with good zooms, it means that you can be in the presence of animals without them even knowing that you're there. Um, and, and, of course, my wife thinks that's another hidden agenda that I just want to play around <laughs> with drones. <laughs> but it does improve uh, my skill set of flying drones. It keeps me uh, on the cutting edge of this uh, really important wave of technology as, as these sort of... Uh, um, uh, not commercial drones, not military drones, but but drones become more affordable and the and the technology becomes um, attainable to us mere mortals on the ground. Now, um, yeah, <laughs> I, I like combining my passion of photography with that kind of tech. And uh, nothing gives me more satisfaction than being able to, you know, be up close visually with an animal, but without disturbing them in any way, and just observing them in the environment and and the beautiful landscapes that they are a part of. So, that's my release valve, um, and and maybe there's a hidden agenda there. I, I'll, I'll debate that with my wife uh, you know, whenever <laughs> I get the opportunity.
0: <laughs> that's awesome.
1: Um, okay, so
0: next one is, what is your favorite food? Like, what's comfort food for for Doctor William Folds here?
1: Yeah, I'm I'm not a good eater um so when i'm working i i, f- I forget to eat um, you'll find my staff also think i'm a, I'm a little bit eccentric because my team are not allowed to drink water and they're not allowed to go to the bathroom um, because that <laughs> i find that a, an extreme waste of time uh, and very disruptive to our day so um, <laughs> that, that, that does mean that anything i can snack on along the way is is great uh, the most convenient snacks for us to take with us on the road are are, are sort of dried meat. You'd know them as jerky, but we call them biltong and, and and dried sausage or, or Um So those are the the ones I like to just stick in a pocket somewhere and forget about them. And and you find a piece there two weeks later, and and you can gnaw on them as you as you go about your days. So, <laughs> so, so those are the um, most convenient. Um, if I ever do get to sit down. In a restaurant, as much as I'm, I'm tending towards less meat, I think it, it's important for all of us to to be a bit more cognizant of that. Uh, the more natural the meat, the more you know, free-range, grass-fed um, th- that meat can be, I think, the better. But but uh, I, I do try and eat less meat. But every now and again, I'm afraid I'm overcome by the desire to, to have a, a nice big um, steak with some mushroom sauce. And yeah. Uh, I'm I'm fighting that weakness, and hopefully in time, yeah, I can I can reduce my meat consumption along with the, the rest of us.
0: That sounds pretty good, though. I got I can't I can't lie. That does sound pretty good <laughs> when you're talking about it. Um, well, awesome. And uh, for those listening, Will, what what is an average day in time look for you? I mean, I I know you pretty much run from like five or six a.m. to like ten or eleven p.m. every day. Um, is that still kind of your running average?
1: Yeah. So average is, is not an easy one because my days fluctuate enormously. Um, so today actually I I didn't work with any wildlife yesterday. We were doing rhino and lions. Um, so today I was catching up on, on, uh, two talks that I need to do next week um and and there's always admin in, in running uh, four businesses in my life so that's not easy uh, and i also Jeez, fundraise yeah. for, for 3 nonprofits. uh so a lot of uh, talking and, and communicating with people uh, tomorrow morning though we are up at 3 a.m uh, departing three thirty a.m driving three hours and and we're actually going to d horn rhino um, for a client that i've never worked with before so the mission tomorrow is to is to take horns of five adults um complicating mix there's is, is two of them have got young calves their foot so we're going to have to have a look at that very closely uh in terrain that i've never seen so you know we'll we'll make those calls on the ground and then then i'm actually coming back from that uh seeing a client on the way back uh, who can't get in from a, a very distant rural environment that we happen to just be driving past and then I've actually got duty in my small animal clinic tomorrow afternoon, so I'll be working with dogs and cats. Um, oh man, you have a packed one tomorrow. Yeah, so so somewhere in there, um, maybe I'll have a, a, a chew on my stick of of bolton, and um, <laughs> uh, before I get back to the small animals, and then I know that tomorrow night I'm going to have to spend some time, you know, working on PowerPoint presentations. Communicating with with funders, um, I've got feedback that I need to to give a funder that that helped contribute towards tracking devices last year. So so that's so that's got to be fitted in sometime tomorrow. And yeah, uh, and then the following day, I've got I've got talks, I've got meetings, and I've got some wildlife work. So that's what's in the pipeline.
0: Whew, man! I tell you, um, I think too many people assume that you know, um, being a wildlife vet would be a Leisurely job. Um, But man, I've worked with you so many times in the field, and I know how long the days are and how challenging it is. And to keep up with it all is quite a bit of work on top of everything else. Um, I guess the last thing we could hit just before we close this out um, you mentioned dehornings, and I don't think we have covered that yet in the podcast. And I think I was waiting until you were on there, on here with me. Um, a lot of folks don't understand, um, the necessity, the, the, what, what, what lines of failures have come all the way through to which everybody's like, okay, we have to do this. Um, it's not something any of us want to do. Um, but to be clear, it doesn't hurt the animal and it's not, um, you know, permanent damage or anything like that. It's, it's a nail trim essentially. It's a, it's a horn trim, um, taking it down to a small, horn plate uh that devalues the rhinos in the eyes of poachers and it does require a veterinary procedure but commonly during that veterinary procedure samples and dna and tags are placed at the same time so it's you know it's fitted in the thing and it does need to be maintained um on average one and a half years or so is your kind of mark to keep that low um i think I think among the first times we talked, uh, if I remember correctly, I do remember adamantly being against it in the earlier days because I had seen failures with it. But the failures were human failures. Um, Primarily, a reserve would only do some of their rhinos. And then a poacher would break into that property and they would get, by chance, one of the dehorned rhinos and a horned rhino. And, um, so it wasn't showing proof in the pudding. And also this is one tool in a toolbox of 40 to 50 avenues of trying to lessen the threat and delay the pressures with the poachers. It's not a solve all. It's not a silver bullet. Unfortunately, there isn't a silver bullet in our system of conservation. Um, so it's, it's something that dramatically reduces the pressure. Um, Will, if you could, could you walk through this as, of that procedure what what is it um for folks the common questions are does it hurt the rhino why do you have to do this and um the end is how does a how does it affect the rhino uh, in its natural environment
1: yeah so you know dehorning uh, is part of the suite of solutions as you've um, alluded to which in this case uh, reduces the reward poachers by by taking off as much keratin as possible without hurting or harming the rhino. Um, I say that because physically we do not um, cause any pain by doing this. There is a technique of of cutting them at the right place uh, so that they're not in any pain. Um, So far, most of the research indicates that most rhino populations are not severely impaired by by not having a horn, you know, for, for the short term anyway. I don't think this is something that we can sustain for generations with, without affecting, um, you know, population and survival rates. But it's certainly a, a short-term tool to have in the toolbox. Um, what it does do, though, is that it pushes poaching – Uh, away from these areas where you have uh, created a high-risk situation for them, which is where the anti-poaching units come in and and possibly combine that with a low-reward situation by taking most of the keratin away. Uh, It pushes those poachers into spaces where that is not being done. So, for example, in the Eastern Cape where I live, I've only got three clients and and now number four uh, tomorrow who are dehorning, and, and those are clients that have, for various reasons, found themselves in a in a vulnerable situation, uh, where they felt that that either their terrain or their you know proximity to communities or you know, known uh, avenues of organized crime have, have made them vulnerable, um, and they haven't been able to establish enough of a security threat to those poachers, um, you know, to stop the poaching there. So. So in our province, it's not done a lot yet, but what we are finding down through the country, as um, and, and unfortunately, this country is is losing the battle uh, to rhino poaching currently, um, uh, and I generalise now, but but that's the overall picture. We we still are losing more than we can breed, in um, that more and more parts of the country are resorting to dehorning to try and. Get that balance of risk and reward in the favor of rhino um and and the trend is starting to come south to where we are now so although we only do it you know in a limited way currently all of the reserves that i work with have all got dehorning in, a, in the back of their minds we're all ready to push that button if we feel that our efforts um, to keep them secure are not good enough um, but the physical process of, of going through a dehorning pro, uh, procedure is not something that we can do to a, uh, a rhino that's awake. So we have to tranquilize them. That can sometimes happen just by darting them from a vehicle and, and tracking them with a drone. But most times, tomorrow included, we've got to use a helicopter to access a rhino, to put a dart in, to follow them and keep them in a safe area to minimize uh, risks and anesthetic and then there's this procedure of coming in with chainsaws and literally taking the the horn off at the right position, um, and then trimming the excess keratin off um, their faces so that we don't um, you know cut too much off, but we leave as little on as possible. Um, and 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 that is sort of an hour long procedure. You know, it does come with risks, and and it comes at great expense too. So. Nothing is easy, nothing's for free. Um, but it has been shown in many parts of the country to be an effective interim tool to just keep the poaching um, incidences down while we deal with the the bigger issues. And those bigger issues really revolve around communities locally, uh, education and, and providing alternatives for communities. They also involve around you know international, criminal syndicates that are that are operating, giving our systems time to find out who they are and, and get on top of them. Um, and then finally, we we are, well, we have for eight years now been working on demand reduction programs in Southeast Asian countries, which we are under no illusion um, is a long game. It, it'll take us generations to curtail demand, but it's something that, that we believe is important. And, and we do that as part of the holistic approach to the whole thing. So Yeah, it is a combination of of a variety of of, uh, solutions that we are applying simultaneously. There's no one formula for every um, rhino reserve. Everyone has to weigh those things up, but dehorning is something that is being adopted more and more now in South Africa to try and keep these poachers at bay.
0: Those are all fantastic points. Um, And yeah, to echo what Will said, so everybody's aware. Um, poaching in Kenya is drastically different than poaching in South Africa. South Africa is—it's the way animals are targeted—is different between the Kruger Park and the Greater Kruger versus Eastern Cape versus KwaZulu Natal province. Um, Botswana is different from South Africa. Namibia is different from Botswana. Um, so it's—it's it's important that there is no like one quote product you you put in place and then it just all falls into play you have so many factors uh, many of which well described so that we can lessen the rhinos lost while developing all of these categories and um in gcf terms we usually talk about today tomorrow five years and 20 years and that's the the threat analysis action plan that we utilize in our four four main pillars and um you know Uh, investing in the community started a decade ago and we're seeing the benefits because now we see kids who want to take jobs in conservation and that's a big game plan and it's the same as the demand reduction. Whereas the dehorning buys us years of time and remember in that conversation of losing a rhino is not just a rhino dead for conservation, it's an investment in the criminal syndicate system and they got a powerful investment when they saw that horn. And that slides the hands of corrupt officials, um, the poachers themselves, weapons and gun dealers, drug deals all the way through. So it's this tangled octopus arm network of negative impacts if a rhino's lost. So the the quote commonly used is it's better to have a dehorned or horn trimmed rhino than a dead rhino um, because horns can always grow back. And so the hope is that as we continue to move forward and integrate all these systems and reduce demand and catch more of the traffickers and weed out all these players and renew the system. So that's better for all rhinos and conservation and elephants as well. And pangolins in the system, um, any of those international wildlife traffic trade items that are commodities from these endangered species or these targeted species, uh, we look forward to the day where we don't have to do things like that. Um, the The pressure is immense when you're, uh, if you've ever had to uh, walk onto a crime scene with a down rhino that's been shot by poachers, uh, I promise you if you've uh, gone through that or can kind of walk through that, you uh, would understand that search to do whatever you can with your very limited resources to, slow it down, stop it, and do everything in your power. Um, So, yeah, Will, thank you again for the long podcast. Um, We really value uh, the time spent with you and all the projects and uh, my friendship with you. I really treasure it. And thank you for all of your hard work. I know it's not easy. Um, It sounds glamorous to the outside, but I know firsthand how hard you work and how much time you put in. Uh, how many sacrifices you've made to be where you are today and how much effort you continue to put in um, it's well outside your your job role and your payroll and um, you know your daily life it's 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 your it is your life um so thank you for all of your time and effort and for joining us today on the coffee coffee and conservation podcast um, and i look forward to all of the Positive upcoming things that we can work on between GCF, Arc, Amakala, Karika, CLI, and all of the Indalo reserves in the Eastern Cape. Um, as as we've already said, and if I don't see you this side before, then I'll see you in January for sure. Um, so say hi to the family for me and and keep well and keep safe uh, until I see you that side.
1: Mark, thank you so much. It's been great uh, to chat and thank you for all those uh, who have listened into this for uh, enduring our conversation. I hope um, that you've learned something um, as we've shared in in some of our life, but most importantly, just to to thank you, Mark, your team, your network, and all those listening for what they have done and and hopefully what they will still be doing. Um, Nothing I do is alone. Everything um, that I, that I do is part of a team a very dedicated team who depend enormously on being part of a, a global family of concerned people uh, who want to see a better future for ourselves and for our kids and uh, it's not work it's 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 just part of um, who we've become and and we are energized by feeding off that uh, mutual concern and, and uh, mutual, uh, support that we get um, from from everyone on your side so thanks for that
0: no it's an absolute pleasure well um, I will see you soon <laughs> great <Thank> you.
1: <laughs> Have a great Christmas if we don't uh, talk between now and then
0: yeah and um, for everybody listening I hope you guys enjoy your uh, Thanksgiving commute and week if you're in the states if you're not. Enjoy the week and the weekend, and we'll catch you on the next episode of Coffee and Conservation.